Well, with the words of the song still resonating in our ears, he's alive. Let's just come, cut right to the chase. We're here today because a dead man came back to life. That is the story of Easter. A dead man came back to life. Let's call it like it is. And as we used to say in Texas, that ain't normal. That ain't normal. In fact, we're, we're not accustomed to dead people coming back to life, and it's a little troubling for us when, when they even the thought is suggested. And Newsweek picked this up the other day, and honestly, this is a letter that came from the Greenville County, South Carolina Department of Social Services. This is an actual letter. This letter was written to a dead person. It said, to whom it may concern, your food stamps will be stopped effective immediately because we have received notice that you passed away. You may reapply if there is a change in your circumstances. Well, that's the problem with death. There's just not much of a change in our circumstances after that. But you know, if you struggle with the idea of someone coming back to life, maybe you just ought to think about this for a moment because the truth be told, God, God wires into our existence a sort of sense that we were, not, we were not meant to die and we were meant to live forever. And I read, I read the other day that 98% of the atoms of our bodies are replaced in the course of a year. So that means if I preached to you a year ago, you and I are not the same people that we were a year ago. At least 98% of us uh, wasn't here then. In fact, your skeletal structure, which appears so fundamentally stable and solid, undergoes an almost complete transition every three months. Our skin regenerates within four weeks. Our stomach lining within four days and the part of our stomach lining interfaces with food every four minutes. And the truth is scientists really don't know why we age. Um, and that's code speak for they don't know why we don't live forever. Because it appears that we were programmed to live forever. So one of the things through the years I've had sort of fun doing and, and found some interest in doing is listening to scientists postulate as to why we age. And I came across this one yesterday, and I thought this was interesting. And so if you're one who believes in bottom-up intelligence evolution, godless evolution, then, then you might find this interesting. It says, from an evolutionary point of view, once an animal is past reproductive age, it's of little use, and it may not be worth the food needed to keep it alive. This means it makes sense for animals to die as soon as they're no longer fertile. Now, I don't know to whom it makes sense if you believe in bottom-up intelligence, but we'll set that aside. Here's the thought that I found interesting. There have been some suggestions that human women live so long post-menopause because they were useful in helping to look after their grandchildren. So for all of you mothers, grandmothers who look after your grandchildren, we owe you a big debt. <laughs> Evolutionary speaking. Which means if you take God out of the equation, there's no limit to stupid. I just, uh, but that's for another message. I just believe something within us says that life goes on. And I found that to be true, whether I'm talking to people of faith or even if I'm talking to my, my non-theist friends. Even within them, in, in more, more honest moments, they admit to me that there's a sense that maybe there's more, more than life than just what we experience. But this is going to be the most unusual talk that I've given in 29 years of being pastor here at New Spring. Because I want to go to a place that's kind of sensitive. You know, of course, I'm going to talk about Jesus rising from the grave. But I want to go to a peculiar point. And, and, and let me just speak to, to some of you. Because I know that on Easter, sometimes people attend church who attend church no other time. And that's for various reasons. Sometimes people are just busy and have other things do, going. But I do think there are people who come back to church on Easter. And at one point in their lives, they had 
great faith or, or faith in God, but then something happened, and then believing in God stopped making sense, or at least believing as much as they did believe stopped making sense. And so, you know, even though you may be here today and, and it may be something that's still meaningful to you, something happened in your life sometime back up the road and truly following God or believing God just quit making sense the way it did at one time. Maybe somebody you loved got sick and died and you thought if God loved you, God would heal that person. Or maybe your relationship broke up or maybe your career dried up and blew away. And because of that, following God doesn't make any sense. Could, could I just say something to you? And this may be a strange thing for, you might think, for a minister to say on Easter. But can I say to you, I think you're not alone. In fact, I am convinced that in every person's life who has faith in God, there is going to be a season where it's going to stop making sense to follow God. And let me just tell you what I mean by making sense. For life to make sense, we all deal with adversities, problems, disappointments, unfulfilled expectations. If you consider a balance, and that's on one side of the balance, or the one side of the scale, on the other side of the scale, there's purpose. And as long as purpose equates to the difficulties that we go through, then life makes sense, or, or if purpose is, is heavier. You can deal with the problems of life as long as you have a sense of purpose and destiny. But life stops making sense when that purpose goes away or that sense of purpose goes away. So all I'm saying is, I am convinced that if you follow God, there's going to be a season in your life where the problems in your life are going to seem to outweigh your purpose and your destiny. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to take you to the Easter story, and I want to introduce you to a woman to whom following God has stopped making sense. Uh, this is a little internal thing for New Springers. You know, of course, that we've been in a series uh, for five or six weeks called The Appointment, where Jesus had one-on-one -on -one encounters with individuals. Life put them in a particular place. Jesus came to meet them, and their lives were never the same again. So in our installment, today's installment of The Appointment series, I want you to see that Jesus has an appointment with a woman for whom following him has quit making sense. I'll introduce you to her. This is in Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, this means Saturday night. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, there's our person, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to Jesus' body and anoint Jesus' body. Okay? John 20, verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, there's our lady, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciples. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Let me just tell you, when you read that woman's statement at that point, here is a lady who is hanging by her fingernails. For life has quit making sense for her. But you should know it's not the first time that life didn't make sense. Long before, long before Mary met Jesus, her life was totally out of control, freakishly out of control. And life certainly didn't make sense back then. And let me read to you what the Bible says about her. And this is in Luke 8, verse 2. One of the women was Mary Magdalene, who once had seven demons in her. Now, guys, I don't know exactly all that means. I just know it's not good. It's really bad. She had seven demons in her. Now, listen, all of us have a dark side. And we all, we all battle with the dark side. But here's the thing. Here's what I understand about demon possession. A person has to willingly open himself or herself up to that. Let me explain what that means. As I said, all of us battle with our dark side. But when we just quit battling and say, to heck with everything, I'm going to do what I want to do regardless of what anybody thinks. I'm just going to be bad to the bone, and, and that's who I am. I mean, and, and no one's going to tell me what to do. At that moment, we open ourselves up to satanic influence, and that's what happened to Mary. 
I'm sure at first she thought she was in control. But the more she opened herself up to the dark side, the worse things got. I don't know. Was it the occult? Was it sex? Was it money? Was it drugs? Was it all the above? I don't know. Maybe so. But seven demons. I mean, you read it with me. She had seven demons in her. Back that out. Let's just say she had one demon in her. That's serious. She had demons, plural. But seven. Seven. I mean, it would, listen, just forget about demons for a moment. It would be tough to live with seven people who harass you, abuse you, and press you to the wrong thing. You say, well, my, that's my group, Mark. <laughs> but that would be tough. But to have seven demons living inside of you. And, and so I'm sure that in those days, Mary's life made no sense at all. And some of us, I don't think any of us know what, he, what, what Mary's life was like, but we might have a little taste of it. And a little taste of Mary's life would be like, I, I do self-destructive things. I do things that hurt other people. I don't know why I do them. But that was her whole life. And no doubt she was thinking, well, it would be great just to have one day where I could think clearly. But that day came. Jesus came to her town. I don't know exactly what happened. Maybe she waited in line to see Jesus. Maybe Jesus just met her where she was. But in that interaction, Mary put confidence in Jesus, and Jesus evicted the demons. And from that, from that day on, Mary's life made sense. I want to read a verse to you. This is in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. One of the women was Mary Magdalene, who once had seven demons in her. Joanna, Susanna, and many others had also used what they owned to help Jesus and his disciples. Well, that was what her life was about from that point on. Her life was about helping Jesus. And it made sense. Purpose outweighed the problems of life. I don't know exactly what it looked like. I think she was part of Jesus' team. She was with Jesus' advanced team. I think she helped with travel arrangements, serving. She donated for expenses. But mostly how I see Mary, I see her sort of working the line. You know, Jesus would heal people and help people, and no doubt long lines would queue up, lines that would last all day. And I see Mary going up and down the line, meeting people who were waiting in line to talk to Jesus, holding their kids, talking to them, and probably seeing things like this. Hey, listen, I know you had to wait in line for a long time. It's kind of like going to New Spring. I know you had to wait in line for a long time, but trust me, it's worth it. When you get up there, when he touches you, you're never going to be the same again. And if we could have met her in that season, I don't know if it lasted months or years, but if we could have met her during that season, I think Mary's mantra would have gone something like this. Life without Jesus makes no sense. Life with Jesus makes sense. Boy, before I met Jesus, I was out of control. Life made no sense. But now I'm helping Jesus. Life makes all the sense in the world. And he rocked on that way for a long time until the Passion Week. It started out well. It started out with a parade. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and people started throwing their coats and palm branches on the ground and calling him the Messiah and asking him to save them now, execute your program now. So Mary's thinking, wow, this is great. Now everybody's going to know Jesus the way I know him. But you know the story of the Passion Week. Things spun out of control, drastically out of control. And by Friday morning, the one she thought was the Savior, the one who had met her and changed her life, is hanging on a cross, dying. But Mary's still doing what Mary does. Mary helps, and there's not much she can do. She's hanging by her, by her fingernails, but she stands out from the cross watching Jesus. If he should call for her, if he should ask for her, she's there. And then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he dies. And along come a couple of guys, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. She knows them. They're senators. 
And they come and they take Jesus' body off the cross and they go out to the graveyard and Mary goes with them and she follows them out in case anybody needs her. She's there to help. And then it's the Sabbath. It's Passover. Nobody can do anything. Everybody has to be still and quiet on the Sabbath. But here's the thing. Mary knows what she's going to do. As soon as the clock strikes 6 o'clock, she's going to take her debit card and go to the store and she's going to do what has to be done to help. She needs liquid, perfumed, fragrant oil to anoint Jesus' body. Because, see, Jesus' burial was a rush job. And Joseph and Nicodemus, they meant well, but for crying out loud, they brought 100 pounds of dry spices. And, and, and the thing about it, they meant well, but they were men. And, you know, the most anybody had ever used before was like 40 pounds of dried spices. They brought 100 pounds of dried spices, but didn't bring anything liquid. So Mary, Mary's going to do what Mary does. Mary helps. She's, I mean, Jesus is dead. If she can't worship a living Savior anymore, she's at least going to pay respect to the corpse of the man she thought was her Savior. And that's when everything really went out of control. If Mary was hanging by her fingernails up to that moment, she, she let go. Because when she got to the tomb, the grave, the grave was open. Now, guys, let me tell you, in 37 years of pastoring, I've conducted probably nearly 2,000 funerals. And I've seen lots of graves. And I've seen open graves before the casket goes in. Graves are not supposed to be open after they're closed. I promise you, if you go out to the cemetery and see a grave that's open that's supposed to be closed, it will freak you out. <laughs> Unless you're a CSI junkie. But graves are not supposed to be open. And so Mary goes out to the tomb of Jesus. She's got her big bottle of, of, of fragrant, you know, expensive perfumed oil to, to anoint Jesus' body. And she goes, and the stone is rolled away, and there's nobody in the grave. And all Mary can think about is, that's not good. Somebody's moved him. They, this nameless day, we don't know who they are, but they didn't like Jesus. And so consequently, they got his body. I mean, can you imagine how disrespectful that would be to go to a tomb and take out, drag out the dead body of somebody because you hate him so much? And so Mary's thinking, that is what has happened here. And at that moment, she does the only thing she knows to do. Peter and John. I go talk to Peter and John. Maybe they got an answer. So she goes and gets Peter and John. They run out to the tomb. They both look in the tomb. They each sort of have their own impression of what's going on. And, but whatever they did, they didn't help Mary. And they leave her standing there. Now, guys, that's the part of the Easter story that I want to start with today. And maybe that's a little unusual for you to experience in church. I, I want to take you to a woman looking into an empty tomb for whom following God, following Jesus, has stopped making sense. You know, Mary would have said up to that moment, life without Jesus makes no sense. Life with Jesus makes sense. But now she had reached the third level where life with Jesus made no sense. Some of the saddest words in the Bible. Let me, let me ask you this before I get there. Have you ever declared spiritual bankruptcy? Have you ever declared faith bankruptcy? Mary is just about to that place. Look at these words in John chapter 20, verse 14. She turned to leave. Put yourself in the moment. She came there. She's given up on Jesus because he died. I mean, but she still loves him, and she's there to anoint his body, and she's bought this expensive perfumed oil, but there's no body. 
And what does Mary do? Mary helps, but life makes no sense. And so she turns to leave. I'm going home. And that's when it happened. Read with me. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. Now, guys, this is my fifth time to preach this message. I still get chill bumps when I read that expression. I'll tell you why. The, re- the word resurrection comes from a Greek word, ana, two words, ana as prefix, stasis, which means to stand again. Now, you know when people die, if you go to a funeral, they're, they're in caskets, and they, and they don't stand up anymore. I mean, I've never, I've, I, like I said, I, I've, I've preached many, many funerals. I've never seen anybody stand up again. Mark Twain said, somebody asked Mark Twain, what would you like for people to say when they pass your casket? Mark Twain said, look, he's moving. You know, <laughs> but, but people don't do that. But the resurrection means to stand again. So let me just say, that's why I get chills when I read that. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. Why is that important? Because the last time we saw that someone, they were taking him off a cross, wrapping his body in 100 pounds of dried spices and putting it in a borrowed tomb. But now, all of a sudden, we see that person standing there. And then these words, it was Jesus. But she didn't recognize him. And we think these are the first words Jesus said after he rose from the grave. Dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. I've, I've known this text since I was a little kid. And I've always wondered, why would she think he was the gardener? I don't know. But she did. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will go and get him. And then this one word, Mary. You know... I think it's going to be one of the greatest moments of our life. Maybe it will be the greatest moment of our existence when Jesus calls our name for the first time and we hear his lips speak our name. Mary. Wow. And she said, teacher. And in that moment, Mary knew he was alive again. I brought my iPhone on stage today. I was doing a funeral the other day and I realized I had my iPhone in my pocket and I hadn't turned off the ringer. I was preaching the sermon. I kept thinking, do I take my phone out and turn off the ringer? Or do I just hope nobody calls? <laughs> but I turned off the ringer today. Now, I'm not a big iPhone fan. I'm on my third one. I think they make great fishing weights. <laughs> but if you're an iPhone person, cute, I understand. Do you, do you remember what the slogan was for the iPhone when it came out? This changes everything. And then when the 4S came out, this changes everything again. Now, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm on my third iPhone. It really hadn't changed anything. (laughs) I'm still getting older. I'm losing my hair. I get sick. I have to go to the doctor. And I'm going to die someday. And and, and I I mean this with all respect. It didn't change everything for Steve Jobs. And when we get right down to it, iPhone didn't change everything. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything. The one event that happened in our world that changed everything is when the man got up and walked out of the grave under his own power. That changed everything. Let me tell you three things that changed and we'll go home, or at least I've got one more service. You'll go home, okay? (laughs) Let me tell you what it changed. The first thing that it changed is 
it was, it was as if God put an exclamation point on all of his promises. It was as if God said, what I've said is true. You know, you can, and, then there, and I know people follow all kinds of leaders of religions, but to me, what, what makes Christian, what makes following Jesus different, I don't think it is a religion, it's a relationship with a person. But, you know, most religions can take you to where their leader is buried. We can't take anybody to where our leader is buried because our leader is alive, he lives. And that is as if God is saying, look, I've proven everything that I've said is true by bringing my son back to life. There's a second reason why the resurrection changes everything. And now I want to talk directly, please, to some of you who something has happened in your past and it's never going to be right again. You know, one of the things that I hate about preachers sometimes is that they blow sunshine at me. And in this sense, as if to say, if you follow God, you're never going to have any problems. You're always going to have lots of money, and every, you're always going to be well. Guys, let me tell you, that isn't true. There are going to be some things that are broken that are never going to be fixed in this world. There will be a relationship that will never be right again. You'll get sick someday, and you won't be able to get well. Somebody you love is going to die. There are going to be some things in our past that will never be right again. But the resurrection says... God will take care of that, and he has a future for me. Let me show you something. This is in the next words that Jesus said to Mary. He said, don't cling to me, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. Go instead and tell my brethren that I've risen from the grave. Let me tell you the two expressions that I juxtapose against each other. Don't cling instead. In other words, there are going to be some things, Mary, that are never going to be the same again. You're not going to work the rope line anymore. You're, you're not going to work the line. You're not, you're, not going to, you're, you're not going to do the things that you used to do. That part of your life is closed chapter. But instead, I've got something for you to do today that's new and fresh. See, that's the great thing about the resurrection. If this world is all there is, and I'm sorry, it's not too good of a ride. There's just stuff that's broken that can't be fixed. But if God has a future for us that's everlasting, I can let go of the things that are broken in the past, and I can focus on what God has for me today, knowing that the future you're as bright as the promises of God. Don't cling, but go instead. And I love the fact that Mary was the first one. Mary Magdalene, the one who had seven demons in her, was the first one to go to the leaders of the first church and say, he's alive, he's risen. There's a third reason why the resurrection changes everything. Let me ask you a question. What does it take for a person to go to heaven? How does a person go to heaven? I mean, let's just say you leave campus here today and you stop at Quick Trip. And somebody says, hey, I saw you just come out of New Spring. Hey, I'm curious about something. I want to make sure I'm going to heaven when I die. How do I go to heaven? What would you tell them? Would you tell them, well, try to be a good person? Hey, I'm dead, if that's what it takes. Because see, when God says good, he means perfect. I can't be perfect for 30 minutes. Sorry, I'm out of that one. Well, you say, try to keep the Ten Commandments. I'm dead there too. I mean, the first one just wipes me out because the first one says I can't have any other gods before God. And I can't honestly say God is always first in every area of my life. I'd love for that to be true. And the Bible says if I break the commandments at one point, I'm guilty of breaking them all. I'm dead. 
Well, somebody could say, well, you need to be part of a church. You need to go down to New Spring and join New Spring. Listen, guys, I've loved this church like my life for 29 years. Let me just tell you something. New Spring can't get you out of Cedric County when you die. Well, you say, you know, you need to be baptized. Baptism is a wonderful thing, but Wichita water can't wash away anybody's sins. (laughs) Now, what are you going to tell them? I'm serious. I mean, that's the biggest thing in life. I mean, it's bigger than what you do for a living, even bigger than who you marry. It's, It's the biggest thing in the world. How do you know for sure that you're going to heaven? Somebody's asking you, how do I go to heaven? What would you tell them? Can I give you the most definitive verse in the Bible on the subject? See what you think about this. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the Bible says, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that's not the pump in your chest, that's just a metaphor for the inner person. If you'll believe in your inner person that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Oh. You see why I say it changes everything? See, going to heaven is not about what you do for God. It's what God has done for you. It's not about you giving God a gift. It's about God giving you a gift. See, this is why I hate religion. You give religion time, it'll screw up anything. Religion says, jump through these hoops and you can appease God. The Bible tells us that there's a God who loves me unconditionally, who gave his son into this world to die for my sins, and that the blood that came out of his body was a currency that paid for everything I've ever done wrong. And then three days later, he stepped out of his grave under his own power, proving that Jesus is everything God said he is. And now because of that, I'm not following a dead man on a cross. I'm following a living king. And it's because of what he has done for me, not because of what I do for him. And that's how you go to heaven. Have you ever had that moment where you've like understood God wants me to put confidence in him? God's not asking you for your money. He's not asking you for community service. He's asking you to trust him, to trust in Jesus that he did for you what you can't do for yourself. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you want to, you can pray it with me. And this is not one of those, you know, repeat after me, humada, humada, humada things that happens in church. This is, this is not like that. No, this is something you have to mean. And I'm going to pray it slowly so that if you really want to say it, you can own it and pray it with me. But, I mean, if you want to talk to God and put confidence in Jesus and know for sure you're going to heaven, let's do that together. You say, well, Mark, you mean repeating a prayer with you is, is no, it's not me and it's not the words. But I'll tell you something. I've stood before lots of brides and grooms in 37 years of pastoring, and I've asked them to repeat after me. And if they meant what they said when they got through, they were married. And I'm going to ask you to pray with me today, if you want to. And like I said, I'm going to pray it slowly because you need to decide whether you want to say these things to God or not. But if you do, he will hear your prayer. Would you pray with me, please? Dear God, I am a sinner. And I'm broken in ways I can't fix myself. But I believe you love me anyway. I believe you love me so much that you gave Jesus to die for me. I believe the blood that came out of his body paid for my sins. And God, I believe you raised him from the dead. Accordingly, I receive him as my living Savior 
and I submit to him as my living king. Give me the strength to live for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stay where you are for a moment if you don't mind. If you just prayed that prayer with me, I have a gift. I want to give you. I know we're congested, but let me ask you to just, like Mary Magdalene, swim upstream if you need to. Uh, there's a guest service that's right out in the middle of the lobby and a little one in the back. And I'm telling you why I'm saying that. I have a gift for you. If you just prayed to receive Christ, and all you got to do is take your talk to us card say, I prayed to receive Christ. There's a DVD and a book that's about as long as somebody who has ADD would write, okay? That answers a lot of questions. I just prayed. What happened to me? Okay. And then a coupon for a new Bible. Please come and get that. I promise you, nobody will hassle you bother you, ask you for your routing number. We just want to give you this, okay? So just come back to guest services. Okay, now see, be still just a second because someone will tell you. I have a lot of fun thinking about Mary Magdalene after Jesus went back to heaven. What did she do? I know she helped. I know that's what she loved to do. And, and maybe it's just a New Spring thing because if you're a New Springer, you know kids are our number one audience here. All you got to do is walk through any of our kids' space and you know that's our number one audience. And uh, so if we have 7,000 people on a weekend, 2,000 of them will be kids. That's just New Spring. So I sort of see Mary Magdalene talking to kids, like kids world. And I see her walk in and with this big bottle, still sealed, of perfumed oil. Hey, kids, guess what Miss Mary has with her today? You see this big bottle? Do you see the seal is still on it? Well, I was going to take this bottle and, and put it on Jesus' dead body in the cemetery. But guess what? I never got to use it because he came back to life. That's the Easter story. Thank you for being here today. <laughs> <laughs>